welcome to Reckoning and Repair, the art that's touched Philadelphia. My name is Adriana, and I'm an art history and anthropology student at the University of Pennsylvania. American art institutions have always assumed the role of preserving national heritage and tradition. They've been the emblems of American ideals, high culture, and intellectualism. Today, I'll be unpacking these ideas with two leading figures from the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts, Juan Omar Rodriguez and Ellie Clark. Juan Omar, a curatorial fellow at PAFA, has worked primarily with Latinx artists, queer artists, and emerging artists of color. Ellie Clark is the manager of exhibitions and interpretation at PAFA and comes from a background in arts production and administration. Together, Juan Omar and Ellie have been working on the upcoming exhibition, Rising Sun, Artists in an Uncertain America, in collaboration with the African American Museum in Philadelphia. PAFA is the first art school and art museum in the United States. And so for about 200 years, it's kind of been the leader of, you know, defining what American art is. And so this exhibition um, is kind of thinking about that responsibility and just like the kind of questions that different people have asked at different points of the United States history. So thinking about 1787, specifically when the Constitution was being signed, Benjamin Franklin was asking if the sun was rising or setting. Um, and then James Weldon Johnson in 1900 wrote a poem, which became a song, the Black National Anthem. Lift every voice and sing. One of the lines of that song was facing the rising sun on our new day begun. So thinking about kind of a more optimistic take um, on the future of the United States. But this exhibition is really trying to like prioritize voices that haven't been part of these discussions. So we have, of the 12 artists at PAFA, 10 of them are women. About nine of them are artists of color. Only three of the artists are just white. So beyond this kind of diversity of like gender and race, there's also an intergenerational aspect of it. So we have artists born in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and the 90s. Um, so it spans about almost 50 years yeah. of artists. Something that I was really excited to learn about when I started working on this project was that PAFA has committed to acquiring either all or portions of the commissions, which you know is kind of novel in the art world. A lot of institutions will commission work, but then you know dealing with whatever is made after it's exhibited is the responsibility of the artist. In us taking on the acquisition part, uh, we're just able to work with a wider range of artists and provide them with that opportunity that otherwise it might be just like another hurdle for them to, to have to think about. Just because of the way that um, in the midst of this crisis, a lot of art institutions were finally starting to think about local artists and about artists who are still alive and working um, and not only trying to work with artists who are already established. So yeah, there was this a really great part of this project, which is thinking about material equity, mm -hmm. not just about legacy and like, you know, collection building and changing the canons, but actually helping artists survive in the present moment. And it does also help to start shaping a new canon if you're not only commissioning these works, but then also being like, we want to acquire these for our permanent collection and steward them on in the future. And I think that that shows a real commitment to the artist that is unusual. Um, and that was one of the really exciting parts of Rising Sun to me. I think um, there's many myths about 
art and artists and the art industry that perpetuate the inequitable paid labor that we all experience. There's this kind of myth that we are all so lucky to get to do what we love and work with artists. It has this mystique that we put on it because it's the arts and that doesn't help us to fight for equitable um, pay. There's just been this culture of, I guess, grinding in the museum world, especially for like contemporary projects. You know, the period is of now and there's so much going on, especially now with social media, there's, it's easy to, to know what's happening everywhere in a moment. And so before the pandemic, you know, many museums had very ambitious exhibition calendars. Um, and exhibitions take a lot of work. They take a lot of fundraising. Um, they take a lot of labor, you know, for moving artwork and preparing spaces. That's, that's a lot of work, a lot of hours that goes into things and a lot of materials. So when the pandemic hit and we all had to, you know, reckon with our workflows and just think about like, does this make sense in this moment? Do we all really have to be on site? Who is actually, you know, most essential, I guess, for certain kinds of work? Which I think also speaks to the moment that we're in of just like a general cross-industry um, reckoning of labor. You know, there's been a lot of museums that have been unionizing um, too to be able to request that because you know there's rhetoric from management and you know the mission and values of the museum that they value their workers or that you know because they're committed to equity that means that there aren't any issues. But you know a lot of people from the floor or the ground floor or the front lines are not being supported and are not being being valued and so. They're trying to bring visibility to that. Yeah. I feel like maybe there is this feeling of responsibility that art institutions have more than perhaps nonprofit institutions, institutions that receive funding, um, because they are they are mission driven. But I think it's happening across, you know, tech and many other industries of just thinking about the ways in which we work and how productivity doesn't necessarily mean is not necessarily like an hours-based thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also part of your environment and feeling supported and feeling like you have space for creativity and having your company nurture those elements. Uh, and I think that is something a lot of industries are grappling with right now because it just wasn't the norm. And we have this kind of space to rethink things in this moment. Mm-hmm. And when everyone became remote, but also tied to your computer in a new <laughs> way, that is <laughs> uh, never ending, it feels like. But um, I think it allowed people to push back on some of that in a way that we just didn't think about before. Most of the times, Curatorial work is understood as the care for objects, but I really want to center the care for artists that is required for me as a contemporary art curator specifically. There's also the artists that need to be compensated properly for the work that they're doing because what they're doing is work. So yeah, just making sure that that's central in the work that I'm trying to push for in the museum, especially when we have a contemporary art department and we have the resources to support the artists. That's kind of what I try to do in terms of like reallocating wealth and resources. Um, I also trained as an educator. So there's also, there's a big divide between 
curatorial departments and education departments. Um, the education departments, I think, and the educators are the main people moving the educational mission of the institution and really driving the service part of museums. Uh, but during the pandemic and the layoffs that started in the first wave of that, um, you know, most of the people affected were educators, while curators were still kept on staff. And mostly, you know, curators are mostly inward looking, I guess. Um, so there was just like an interesting dynamic that I saw there, just like, okay, if museums are educational institutions, which they tout as a way to hide the fact that they are also still businesses, <laughs> this, isn't, this isn't right. I don't know that you could ever have a collecting institution that isn't tied to business practices because mm -hmm. it would operate in a marketplace. Mm -hmm. You know, I think one thing that is really interesting in this time uh, is the pressure of public opinion and public response for nonprofit institutions, for museums. But I also, you know, I think in the museum world, but in the world world is that no one listens to each other. So I guess something I try to do is listen to it in all forms from wherever it's coming from and then decide for myself what I can take from that. Your note about listening and about being public facing, you know, reminds me a little bit about the way that the history of museums still kind of affects the kind of disconnect that we have currently as, you know, because museums come from princely collections. They were places for wealth and of wealth, controlled by people who were wealthy. In the, I guess, 18th century is when they started becoming more public-facing, but they were still tied to the people who made them. They were personal collections that became available for public consumption, I guess, in a sense. And then eventually, like I guess, I think it was in the 19th or 20th century, was when museums started first getting their educational impetus. Because before, they were just displays of wealth um, and weren't about educating the masses. They were just like available by appointment to very specific people, then eventually started opening up to more and more, and then it became a business, then it became educational. But the educational part was still, you know, based on class because it was part of a civilizing project of just trying to impart the tastes of the wealthy on everyone. Mm. And even though like museums are more like, you know, we're educational, we're for the public good, a lot of collections in museums are shaped by individuals. Uh, a lot of the works that we are able to acquire because sometimes we, you know, museums don't have robust acquisition budgets, they come from gifts. Um, and most of the people who can give art are people who can buy art, and in this time and age, art can be really expensive. Um, which, you know, is, is good too for the artist trying to make a living of this. But for an institution that, ex that is expected to collect everything, <laughs> or as much as possible, that can be unsustainable with the actual resources we have at ha on hand, so that's where the collectors come in. But even then, you know, that again is where museums still get seen as kind of the, the play places of the elite. And if we're just focused on the collections and the objects that we have and just like trying to interpret them, we're mostly interpreting the things that other people collect for a rich. And so that's, you know, then a lot of museums now are thinking about service, are thinking about being in community, you know, that entails listening and trying to remember, like, what are the actual needs of the people that I'm with? Uh, because a lot of the people who are funding the museum don't live in the immediate surroundings of the museum, right? No one really lives around. <laughs> it's a lot of, uh, you know, the convention centers across the street, there are lots of stores, there's parking lots. 
Oh, in um, the immediate neighborhood, yeah. Yeah, and so wow. in the immediate neighborhood, we have a lot of unhoused people, too, mm-hmm. on the streets. So it's just like thinking about, like, okay, this is our community, too. Like, sure, they're not currently understood as desirable visitors because they don't have money to get to the museum, but then, you know, they're still part of our community, and so what can we provide to them? We have all this space, we have all these resources, how can we use the museum to be a service? And that's the kind of thinking that, you know, is a lot of other museums also having, thinking of shifting and expanding the mission to be more of service to immediate communities and not just to be these kind of repositories of wealth. Um, you know, I like art. I like cultural <laughs> heritage. I like thinking about lineage and like preserving things for other people in the future. But just like, at what point does that not make sense for the, you know, the people that we're actually living with? And I think I'll just pivoting to the conversation of decolonization. Decolonization, I think, would require the, the destruction, I think, of museums. Mm. Um, decolonization is about land back. We cannot decolonize museums unless we give stewardship of the land back to the indigenous descendants and inhabitants of the areas we're in. But yeah, it's a conversation that I think a lot of us in the museum field are trying to have and just trying to push forward and just mm-hmm. making work that will encourage more work, even if we can't decolonize in our lifetime. Yeah. Um, it's going to take a lot of steps <laughs> because, again, like anything that we're doing is just going to be a little blip um, in the long history of museums. And so we just have to trust that the work that we do is going to encourage more. It's a really important Thing that we keep having these conversations and then apply what we're learning to the exhibitions and the, the way people can experience them. Mm-hmm. Because this is not a project we can do just once and then carry on mm-hmm. business as usual. That would be violent. Thank you for listening to Reckoning and Repair, the art that touched Philadelphia. Reckoning and Repair is a Center for Experimental Ethnography project engaged with the exhibit Rising Sun, Artists in an Uncertain America, a collaboration between the African American Museum in Philadelphia and the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts, open from March 23rd to October 8th, 2023.